Welcome to the Project Tempest podcast, where we talk with creators about their journeys, struggles, and inspirations. My name is CJ, and we're joined by Nick Jones, who's a narrative designer and transmedia storyteller, and the author of the new book, The Player and the Pentacle, Folkloric Motifs for Narrative Design. Nick, welcome. Thank you for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me. Now, I'd like to talk first about things you've been playing recently, but there's a quote from your book that I loved that we're going to come back to. And this is about the idea of folklore as an underlying story engine. And your quote is, if folklore is a door, then interactivity is the key, and behind that door lies the profound. That's a cool quote, man. Nice job. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I think uh, when I wrote it, I was a bit, uh, bit worried that it might sound a bit too flowery, but... Um... But it's hit hit right by the sounds of it. <laughs> exactly. I was like, I was like, underline, awesome. Um, so we will talk about your book soon, which I have read and I thoroughly recommend. What have you been playing recently? What's been obsessing you? Gosh. Um, so I've been playing uh, first off uh, Horizon Forbidden West. Um, that that came out, I believe, uh, early to middle last month. Um, so was playing that quite a lot. Uh, and then Elden Ring came out, and so I nice. sped up Horizon Forbidden West, just got through it as fast as I could so I could jump into Elden Ring. Um, I'm a, a big From Software fan. Um, I, I love the the way that they tell stories and the way that they create an immersive environment, so um, I was very interested to explore that world. And so far, I've, I think I've probably sunk a good 30 or so hours into it, and beaten two bosses <laughs> or, or at least nice. two major bosses so so it's it's definitely hard which is good it's gonna carry me for quite some time i'd say see now the entire podcast schedule has been removed and we're just going to talk about elden ring for two because <laughs> i have also been playing elden ring what a what a time we live in where at least two gigantic brilliant games come out in the same month and we have to divide our time between them this this was not always so in games it's like what a what an age of choice um for those people who are maybe not as familiar with elden ring um there's a long and famous line of games from a japanese um, um house called from software and this is most famously demon souls and then the dark souls games and then bloodborne and these are dark fantasy games which are very mysterious and have a very distinctive flavor to them, a kind of forlorn, broken world flavor. And they are famously very hard. And playing these games kind of goes against a lot of the assumptions of normal, modern AAA development, which is often based around trying to make things easier and more convenient for the player. And, and most of the From Software games are more like, no, here is a challenge. It's going to break you repeatedly. And then when you overcome that challenge, you're going to have an enormous sense of satisfaction. And so they had done several very successful games. And then their new very big game is Elden Ring, which takes the elements of the previous ones, but puts it into a fully open world. You have a giant, fantastical landscape that you can journey on your horse and delve into adventures and dungeons and lots of things. Does, is that a reasonable summary of Elden Ring from your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Elden Ring is uh, a lot more accessible than the previous entries, um, simply by way of having it as an open world. Um, it, and in previous games, it's it's I guess you would call it semi-open. Um, there is a bit of space to move around in the previous games, but uh, at the end of the day, you're sort of following uh, a pathway through different areas. Um, these pathways often sort of loop back on themselves or, or have like secret passages, things like that. But but you're following sort of like a train tracks through the game with these previous games. Um, and what that does basically means that if you come up across a boss or a difficult enemy that you can't beat or that you're struggling with, there's not really anywhere else to go. Um, you hit this wall and you just have to keep practicing and practicing until you can get past it. Um, what Elden Ring does differently, and this is what I think makes it more accessible, is that open world format allows you to run up against a boss that you can't beat um, and then turn the opposite direction and go somewhere new and find a new storyline, um, some new enemies, a new area to explore um, and level up. And by the time you're ready uh, to come back to the boss, you're, you're, you're a lot stronger, you've got better equipment, you know the game better. And so the boss is uh, not as frustratingly difficult. 
Absolutely. There's that moment that, that everybody has in one of the earlier games, like Demon's Souls or Dark Souls. Exactly as you say. There's a corridor, effectively. There's a 30-foot high thing with an axe, and that thing kills you. And your option is to either keep on getting killed or leave the game or eventually get good, as the kids say. And that's a, that's a pretty hard stop. Effectively, that is... That that hard barrier is very much present in the games. One thing I've loved about Elden Ring, exactly what you're saying, I'm a I'm a complete wuss when it comes to actual combat. In a game built around combat, combat is my least favorite part of that game. So I run around, I explore, I hack very easy enemies to death and steal their runes and level up, and then eventually I go back to the hard guy and I'm like, right, things are different too. Um, and and but there's that that thing which I think we were both starting to talk about at the very start of Elden Ring there are many open world games and some of them um, from from some developers have tended towards let's overload you with input and activities and icons on a map as it were and that's very much about core player loops where you're never more than 30 seconds away from a new fun activity that the game will reward you for and there's something especially in Elden Ring there's an atmosphere and a forlornness and a sense of discovery, at least that I've found, that feels completely different. I don't feel as though I'm having 200 different icons thrown at my eyeballs. Yeah, and yeah. is that f coming across for you as well? Yeah, absolutely. I I'm, I initially encountered from software games through uh, Bloodborne, right? I'm a, a, a big Lovecraft fan. I know you've had some um, Lovecraft scholars on the show before. Um, and I'm quite jealous that you, you've uh, been able to pick their brains. Um, I would love to do that myself. But um, yeah, I started off with Bloodborne and um, that was, uh, you know, I, I heard about it through various uh, websites online as being a, a, a fantastic um, adaptation or, or, or a game inspired by the Cthulhu mythos um, and, and the works of Lovecraft. Um, and so I jumped into that game expecting it to be like other action RPG games. <laughs> and the, the first thing that, that um, struck me uh, was, was the difficulty, of course. But um, once I started to understand, okay, this is a game about perseverance and, and learning, um, the, the next thing that struck me was the way that they don't hold your hands with story with uh instructions or anything like that it's all left very open for you to um, interpret or discover yourself um, and the cool thing that this does is it creates a, an online community of of fans that are all sort of sharing ideas and theories and, and helping each other out they have a great um online multiplayer sort of system uh, i'm not myself a multiplayer person um, but i i really respect what they do with this in which you can summon um, a uh, essentially an anonymous player from another version of the game to help you um, go up against a boss or a difficult area uh, on on the flip side other players can invade your world um, and just pester you while you're trying to fight a boss someone might appear and start attacking you as well um, not a big fan of that side but i understand the reasoning for it um, but yeah and I it think... is hilariously funny at times in a really oh, yeah. bad way yeah absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah I, I think that the the charm of these games is that they don't hold your hand um, they let you discover everything for yourself um, the, the the point in which i was sold on these games uh, was when I was playing through Bloodborne. I, I don't know if you've played through that one particularly, but um, I think the first compulsory boss in the game, a, a, a character called Father Gascoigne, um, who is a, a sort of a church hunter that's um, turning into a werewolf sort of beast. Uh, and he acts kind of like a, a guardian between you and the rest of the game, right? Um, he, he's sort of testing you to see whether at this point whether you have learnt enough to actually survive the rest of the game and he's he's very fast he's very big he jumps around a lot um, and he hits like a train right and i think i was stuck on him for a good two to three weeks of, of playing the game for at least half an hour a day uh, and the point point in which i finally figured out his patterns and moved fast enough to actually beat him 
Um, that was the point in which I was sold with these games because the adrenaline rush that comes from killing a boss that you've been stuck on for, for weeks, um, even just for days uh, with some of the other bosses, when you kill them, um, that adrenaline rush, I'd, I'd never encountered anything like that before in a game. I had uh, tingling in my hands, um, you know, my heart rate was up. Um, and so I guess it's in a way kind of like a drug, you know, you get addicted to that that sense of success. And um, I think Elden Ring is, is great just bringing it back to that game because it still gives you that, that feeling when you take down um, one of their massive bosses. Uh, but there's a bit more freedom to uh, move away and, and do other things so that you don't feel like you're stuck in this one spot um, repeating your death over and over again. I call it, um, I call it being death-locked. Um, yes. You know, once you've died a few times to a boss, you're likely going to keep dying because your your um, your hope sort of goes down. Um, and and in that instance, the best thing to do, I believe, is to turn the game off and come back to it. Uh, you know, the next day or something. And sometimes, quite often, actually, when you come back to it, you you take the boss down straight away. So um, there's there's definitely a weird thing there where um, too much failure without any breaks uh, can can just lead to more and more failure. That's that's awesome. I I look forward to checking in with each other as as we progress. I've I've also played a significant chunk of Elden Ring, and it, it one thing that's awesome for me is um, it it continues to delight and surprise. It's it's not a one trick pony at all, and no. it's much larger than I thought, which is really impressive. I, I've I've been and very much to your point. I I play with my partner, but she she doesn't want any bar of combat, especially hard combat. It's it's not her thing. So the other Dark Souls games have always been inaccessible to her. But there's plenty of scope in Elden Ring, as as you say. Um, you hop on your horse and you follow a little trail down into a mysterious dell that you haven't been into in these shadowy places in a cave, and you can wander around and explore and find things. And she can do that. And the sense of mystery is really compelling, much more compelling in, than in, I think, some of the games where there's a path clearly laid out for you. She will just literally kind of point her horse in a direction and go, and there's something there. There's going to be an interesting thing, but there's no markers, and and, and that's providing a really compelling experience for both of us, which, which I love. Um, how did you get to the point, like, when you were younger, were you playing games? Were you fascinated by them did you have no contact with them what's your what's your origin story for kind of getting into games yeah i i think the first first game i played was uh parappa the rapper i think on awesome. um, on playstation one when i was about probably seven six or seven years old um my i believe my dad had purchased a playstation one um for the family as like a christmas present and was trying it out while we were in bed sort of thing each night, me and my brother. And uh, one day he had to leave early for work in the morning and forgot to put it put it away again. So uh, we ended up with an early Christmas that year um, and started playing Parappa the Rapper, Crash Bandicoot 1, uh, and the Disney's Hercules um, adaptation. And so they, they were sort of my first introductions to video games uh, after that. Uh, I know my dad was very big on Tomb Raider, um, oh, and, nice. and so as a result, I always had a love for the Tomb Raider games as well. Uh, I, I, as a kid, I wanted to be an archaeologist and, and thought that I uh, could experience the life of, of Lara Croft or Indiana Jones and have these like exciting adventures. Uh, so I was very, uh, very big fan of those games as well. So yeah, I've been been playing games since I was about seven years old, uh, off and on. Um, more so now than ever before, now that I, I, I work in the industry, a, a lot of my job revolves around playing other developers' games and, and sort of taking notes and learning from what decisions they make with their storytelling um, so that I can sort of uh, fold that back into my own repertoire. Uh, but yeah, my, my origin with games is, is, I guess, pretty simple. It's, it's my dad. Dad bought, bought a, a PlayStation 1 and um, as, as I was a teenager, he was reviewing games for websites. He's also a writer himself, uh, so he used to get lots of free games and, and free consoles. So I was able to dabble across the board um, at that point. Nice. Now, last year we had Jason Killingsworth on, and J Jason is based over in Ireland. 
and he helped make to our point by the way the dark souls book you died but jason was talking about how his upbringing had been in quite a quite a strict religious environment and that his reaction against that kind of launched him into really exploring fantasy worlds and gaming and you may have had something similar yeah i was i was raised in a pentecostal christian family um, evangelical uh, not quite as extreme as uh, the american evangelical stream uh, but still you know uh, we went to church every every Sunday. They spoke in tongues at the church services. There was uh, people would get prayed for healings. Occasionally, you'd have like a an ex exorcism or something like that happen at a at a church service. Uh, lots of tithing, handing out your money to these um, different organizations, all all of that sort of stuff. Uh, so yeah, I was I was raised in that, um, uh, and my parents are still still quite religious, but. Uh, myself and my siblings are not at this point uh, for me it was hard to remain religious once i um, realized that i was gay um, that that kind of you know sort of threw a wrench in the in the works uh, particularly because i was at the time studying at a bible college to become a youth pastor yeah. um, and I, I ended up doing i think one year as a youth pastor at a church here in auckland um, before realizing that that was not the way that I wanted my life to go. Um, and so I, uh, uh, thankfully, that, uh, well, I should probably shouldn't say thankfully, but the, the church I was working at closed down because they couldn't afford the building. Um, and that sort of gave me an out uh, to, to sort of go off and do my own thing. Um, so at that point, I, I went back to university and, and studied creative writing and, and English and new media studies. Um, and that was sort of, uh, where I started realizing that writing for games might be something for me, um, and pursued it from there. That's such a that's such a fascinating turn. It's if and very much if you don't mind, I I just like to explore like how did that whole period feel? You must have gone from one view of the world to a different view, and that transition might have been I I don't know. I I would love to understand how did that whole thing feel. Yeah, it was it was tough uh, at first. Uh, you know, you sort of I I so I left the church and came out at the same time, um, and that resulted in, in losing a few friends through that I had through church. Um, but uh, I mean, my core friend group uh, from the church days, uh, they stuck around me still, and and I believe most of them are no longer in church either so um, there was sort of an exodus as if you will uh, out of out of church at that point um, but yeah it's it's definitely been a progressive thing you know um, I, I, I left the church with quite conservative values at the time um, and then over a period of several years I think it's been eight, eight years now since I, I left church um, over that time uh, my politics and my view on the world um, changed quite radically to the point where um, I can no longer talk politics or religion with my family because, or at least not with my parents, because I am um, as left-leaning as you as they come now. So, uh, but yeah, it was a process of of learning and and I just sort of tried to take the position of, okay, I may what I have been taught as a kid may be wrong and i need to be open to that um, and open to uh, understanding these other points of view uh, and i think that really helped me because it, it sort of gave me that that freedom to explore and you know there's there's still things where i i guess i would be um uh, conservative in practice um, whereas not necessarily conservative in in theory about something um, but in general i'm i'm um, as far to the opposite end of the spectrum now as possible. <laughs> we're, we're, we're always conversing and repeating and trying and I think struggling a little bit with that younger self, right? There's, a, there's always a conversation going on of some kind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, on the bright side, I do think one, one great thing that I was able to take out of, uh, I say that experience, but it was really like my entire childhood and teenage years and early 20s um, but I you know I have a have a degree in um, uh, church history and theology um, which is 
basically useless um, when it comes to finding a job or anything like that. Uh, but what it does give me is a really solid understanding on how uh, religions are formed yeah. and, and how they grow over time. And that's something that I've been able to take into particularly fantasy games that I've worked on, um, being able to develop realistic religious systems for different cultures within these games. Um, and uh, even even my, my book, uh, which you know focuses on folklore, um, inevitably when you write about folklore, you come into conflict with Christianity because Christians, you know, spread across Europe after the fall of Rome, um, and uh, you know, forced their beliefs on a lot of other um, cultures that they uh, viewed as pagan, and and so you get this sort of Christianization of pagan beliefs, um, and so when you're studying folklore, you have to sort of weed through it all and go, okay, this is likely a um, version of the story that has been tweaked by Christian monks um, to make it more pal palatable to uh, a Christian society. Um, so, so yeah, having that background gives me a little bit of a, 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 um, an edge, I guess, when it comes to researching that stuff and also writing uh, stuff like that within fantasy worlds. That's so cool. It's and and it's such a thing of that that idea of there's almost nothing so exotic or esoteric or weird that if you don't put enough pressure on it, it will become valuable to you in some context. Nothing is useless. I always love that. I when I was at university, I I was I think one of the later students in Auckland University's Latin classes, and they were they were always in danger of being shut down because at the time the university was strongly focused on trying to give people jobs and give them useful knowledge latin in theory the least useful knowledge you can have and my tutor was always on the on the brink of unemployment but then he gets this great gig where he would do the latin translations for xena warrior princess which was filming in new zealand and it was a very high paying gig and he'd been waiting for this his entire life He'd, it was it was a wonderful kind of moment of like right this this thing is actually my superpower this wonderfully strange bit of knowledge it's, it sounds like it's such a cool transfer yeah, um, yeah. I, um, I had I, I had this one memory actually uh, when I was in um, gosh uh, inter intermediate school I don't know what what they call that in, in other other countries for your overseas viewers but I was about uh, 11 or 12 right and uh, they used to have these science fairs every every year um, or, or uh, I think it was actually it was called like young inventors um, so it was an invention fair and um, I developed a world like a fantasy world it was very much a ripoff of um, Terry Pratchett's Discworld because um, that's what I was reading at the time and I, I built this big map and I had all this like history about the world and different characters and stuff and I presented that as my invention in this uh, young inventor sphere and uh, was basically laughed at by the other students and the teachers as well because this is not an invention this is not scientific this is you know com the complete wrong sort of subject to be doing this in um, but the joke's on them because now I do that for a living you know and I, I, I get paid quite well for it um, so so yeah <laughs> nothing, nothing is, is useless you know uh, oh, no exactly Every, I mean, not every, but damn near every cool kid at the moment would would love to be working in video games. Exactly. And that was not always true. That was absolutely not no, always true, no. especially in our country. Um, on that note, and, and it's one thing that, that I think I've found talking with a really wide range of creators, very often there's a sense of one way or another being an outsider, of being aware of kind of the curtain being pulled back on things. Is that something that you feel that you've experienced on on your journey? Yeah, I've I've always I, I probably have always considered myself a bit of an outsider. Um, uh, you know, being being gay, um, you know, makes me an outsider to church. Being um, raised in a Christian family makes me an outsider to the secular world. Um, I, I as a teenager, I was uh, very big on like sort of punk and metal music. I uh, used to go to shows. I played in a, in a hardcore punk band for a couple of years as well when I was about 18, 19. Could have even been a little bit older, actually 20, something like that. Uh, and, and that's a, you know, a, um, a subculture in and of itself. Yeah. Um, the, the funny thing was, is I, I was I was still a Christian at that point, so I was in a Christian metal band, um, and we would be like, you know, preaching 
at, at shows and praying for people after our, after our set was done and and so that made us an outsider to that group as well so so I, yeah I've, I've always been something of an outsider um, it, with working in games um, it's not as bad per se but there is still this sort of leftover notion from uh, you know the 90s that that a narrative designer or a game writer is kind of um, a nice to have but not a necessary to have right and uh, and so there have been times where I've had to um, really fight to prove my worth as a as a game developer um, within the industry um, that is getting better um, I've been doing this for what six years now and over that time that I have seen um, I've seen that seen the industry sort of um, take a hard hard left turn away from narrative and then take a right turn back towards narrative um, within that period of time so uh, it, it is getting better but yeah even in the games industry sometimes you do feel like an outsider particularly if you, you're like me and you can't really code or, or do any of that sort of te technical stuff it's uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because the the um if you if you can't code then you are just a little bit less than the rest of us is like the most omnipresent thing among developers not to hassle developers <laughs> but absolutely it's like this kind of poor pat pat oh oh i'm sorry <laughs> um there's a it's a it's a thing that comes through over and over again when we talk to people and it is that sense of um i, I think especially probably the last maybe the last five years there seems to have been an explosion worldwide in recognizing the the many, many, many different ways that all of us, especially younger people, can have that sense of one way or another being out of joint with what feels like the default, and that and that idea that you're actually not broken. You know, if if you're whatever, 12, 15, 30, 40, and that overwhelming sense of things don't quite fit. I'm coming at this thing from an oblique angle. All these people are different from me type thing. Um, I think for the longest time in our culture, that there were people across the board suffering a lot simply from that, that basic feeling of, I know on a, on, on a gut level that I am some kind of outsider, but I do not know how to resolve that or articulate it. And that shift over the past few years to kind of, a, a lot more advice and resources and context and just basic compassion being available for for, for everyone and, and this to me is one of the things that i see in games as, as well um games for a very long time speaking broadly as a as a culture was a bro culture and i mm. think that's if if you were around game studios even even 10 years ago there was 90 percent guys of a certain kind and there's nothing wrong with that as and it's in and of itself but you have this shift now towards an industry that is actually trying and evolving i think in response to this idea of there's just this much bigger spectrum of humanity and experience and possibility and people rushing into games from almost everywhere and i think that's one of the most positive things that i see this idea of we are opening and expanding our eyes a little whereas you're absolutely right for for significant chunks of gaming's history one way or another a very small set of mindsets were largely responsible for saying this is what gaming is this is what it isn't and and this is what being a game developer is which i think is just a wonderful thing so on that note sailing into your next adventure overseas i believe um and you have this wonderful book which is expressing some pretty powerful ideas the player in the pentacle some pretty powerful models for ways to think about narrative and games that are taking some some existing things and really going several steps further so can you tell me a little bit about the player in the pentacle yeah sure um i mean just to, just to sort of quickly follow on from what you were just saying sure. then the, the the irony i think um of of, of uh, all of this is that everyone is an outsider there, there's yes. no such thing as an insider, right? Um, there is no middle. It yeah. just vanishes when you look at it. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're humans, and humans are diverse and colourful and different. Um, there's no no two, two of us are the same. And I think really any sort of system that tries to suggest otherwise is a broken system um, and something that needs to be overhauled. Um, and really that's a, a large focus in, in my book is, is talking about how 
um, how there are these systems that uh, that we have created for better or worse that um, uh, are broken and and are perpetually broken and um, as a result of that they create these sort of villainous figures um, like uh, you know to be topical Vladimir Putin for example right he is a a product of a broken system that that exists in our world today um, and uh, I, I believe that um, story has the power to to change the world right it is one of the most if not the most powerful thing that we as humans have is the ability to tell stories and inspire people through stories and so uh, a large push of what I've done with my book is is to explore how um, first off how stories from our, our ancient past folklore um, have been used over the years to inspire groups of people and and change cultures um, and then to look at how that can be uh, the the um, uh, not rules so much as as the ideas that are in those stories how they could be uh, utilized and reincorporated into modern sensibilities of, of storytelling um, in particular video games because that is my personal focus um, or expertise but but I believe that the the um, the ideas that I put forth in the book are applicable to, to all forms of uh, storytelling based entertainment um, whether it's um, live events or, or um, a film or a TV show or a comic um, the, these rules are, are, are loose enough to be applied across the board um, so yeah I think I think it's an important hopefully an important um, book uh, for, for those that do read it it's really interesting you say one of the points that you make in the book that, that really interested me you talk about um, essentially the sympathy business versus the intimacy business and a lot of my background is in film and one way or another when you're working in film you are working from a foundation of the hero's journey which is a pretty well-worn model that emerged strongly in the 1970s and it's based on some work by joseph campbell and others but the hero's journey the the classic expression of it is star wars where you have essentially a young figure who is probably an orphan who goes on a journey guided by a wizard and ultimately has to defeat something um and the hero's journey is extraordinarily powerful but the problem that you have is that it turns into a formula very quickly and it fundamentally exists around a duality as you say there is a hero and there is almost always a villain or a shadow or a dark side there is a luke skywalker and there is a darth vader and once you go too far down the road with some of those models like the hero's journey you are essentially feeding in and of yourself your all of your all of your movie stories become about well we have to have as good a possible hero and as compelling as possible a villain and we are trying to slot people into those roles and one of the things that you talk about is this idea that um in film especially you're 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 trying to create sympathy for your hero you're seeing someone up on a big screen and you are not that person but you are trying to create some kind of an emotional connection to luke skywalker or katniss or whoever it is whereas in games and in the kind of stories that i think you're arguing for you're really talking about intimacy because you, you are this person you are you are trying to empathize and be much more intimate with a character you might be shaping that character yourself and you're existing in worlds that while they might have enemies and bosses and that sort of stuff don't necessarily lend themselves to the dualities and the simplicities of something like the hero's journey is that where you were coming from partly yeah so uh, i mean i am i'm very indebted to another narrative designer out there called jeff gomez um with, with a lot of these ideas. Uh, Jeff has been pioneering for years now this idea of uh, the collective journey narrative model as opposed to the hero's journey narrative model. Um, and I, I'll probably do a lesser, lesser version of, of his spiel about the whole thing, but essentially, you know, the hero's journey model, it's been with us since, um, since we were, were cavemen. Um, it was uh, a way of um, conveying information to other tribe members um, to stop them from getting killed, right? You know, you leave the, the you leave the campfire and go out into the darkness and there's wild animals. There are um, enemy tribes. There's all this sort of danger, and so um, people that left 
the the uh, the tribe to to collect food or or whatever resource needed to be inspired um, and uh, uh, taught about the world, and that's why the hero's journey model is very much the whole like sort of leaving the normal world, going into the mysterious, dangerous magic world, facing off off against a dragon or or, or whatever, and then returning with a boon for for your community, um, and that was important um, because you had to be inspired to do that. You had to know that you were the good guy. You were doing the right thing. And anyone that got in your way or anything that got in your way, they were the villain, they were the enemy. Um, and so that worked for quite some time. But the problem with the, the um, hero's journey narrative model is that it creates tribalism. We are by default right, because if we're not right, we're dead. And anyone else who um, you know conflicts that point of view they are wrong, they are evil, they are the villains. Um, and so uh, as we move more into modern times and we have things like the internet and nonlinear, pervasive digital communication, um, tribalism no longer serves us, right? We are all one people, we are all connected by the internet, by social media. And so when you use these sorts of hero journey narrative models today, um, it just serves to sort of enhance conflict between two different groups, um, even more so because more groups can find their voices on social media. Um, and so what, what Jeff advocates for is, is uh, the collective journey narrative model, which is um, much more about um, empathizing with, with one another and, and understanding uh, that we are all connected in some way and, and stories that use this model um, they don't have a singular hero or a singular villain, though those two character types may still exist in the world. Um, but you have a collective of characters, and instead of this sort of big Darth Vader villain at the top, you've got a broken system that produces these sorts of characters, these sorts of enemies. Um, and so that has been very... Um, uh, inspirational instrumental to my own work um, within this book um, where I yeah, where I am arguing that um, unlike film or TV or, or a novel uh, we're not asking you to uh, empathize with the protagonist we're not asking you to sympathize with the protagonist we're asking you to be the protagonist and uh, to draw from my my Christian background here, there is this concept in, in church history and theology of um, mystical union is what they call it, right? And this is this idea that um, when uh, Jesus Christ died on the cross, um, God somehow mystically united the spirit of every human being with the spirit of Jesus. And so the idea being that he no longer sees everyone as sinners, he sees us as a form of Jesus. And so I sort of took that idea and, and um, you know, removed the religious connotations from it and, and utilized that in, in a way of understanding a character that you embody um, as the player of a, of a game, this, this idea of being in, in mystical union with the protagonist. Um, so we're not asking you to sympathize, we're not asking you to empathize. You by default can't have empathy for yourself. Empathy is something that you put on to another person. Um, and so uh, the work that I've done in this book is, is looking all at how can we um, minimize the distance between the player and the player character as much as possible to the point where they feel like they are to a certain degree that protagonist and they want to um, do the things that that protagonist would would want um, and so that's really the the um, I guess like the the thesis of the of the book is is particularly looking at how do you create a character where there is little to no separation between them and the player once the player jumps into the game nice are there existing games or other things that to you embody the approaches that you're arguing for yeah there's there's a few that do uh aspects of what i'm arguing for i i don't know if i've seen anything that uh incorporates all these things or, or does it perfectly and i don't know if we ever will see that right um because uh, you know, these, these are difficult things to do. Um, 
and all you can really do as a as a writer and as a um, an academic is is provide the information for others, um, and it's up to them how they interpret it and, and develop something from it. But but I do definitely see things like the From Software games as utilizing um, certain elements um, of, of what I'm arguing for. Um, yeah, I mean, From Software is definitely a um, a, a major one there. Um, the uh, the new God of War game um, utilizes uh, elements as well, um, which we may or may not touch on, um, depending on on how far we get. But uh, but yeah, but yeah, there's there's a few games that utilize different elements, but nothing that necessarily utilizes everything um, all in one go, and that's fine. If you take the classic way that a lot of people end up playing a large role-playing game like Skyrim, where it's possible to play Skyrim as I'm the hero and I have to go and beat a certain villain, but I think long-time players of something like Skyrim, they often just want to exist in the world, and, they, and they're not so concerned with the morality of their actions, but they and, and they don't necessarily just want to go and hit everything with a sword. They want to kind of be part of this social system and this environment that has a lot of different factions and characters and perspectives in it. Um, would that be part of the, the this type of approach where, where you're living within a system and understanding how that system might be corrupted and broken and challenged rather than necessarily just, just being the hero of your story? Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's necessarily a need to be the hero, right? Uh, people people are escaping into games more and more these days because, I mean, look, you, you just turn the news on, you see the real world is kind of kind of shit right now, um, and so uh, games offer an escape. They offer a way to sort of transcend the the existence that we are forced to embody um, in the in the real world, right? And, and so I think creating these worlds these these virtual worlds that people can escape into and and live almost alternative lives um, is definitely uh, an exciting prospect I, I wouldn't want to see people you know escape into virtual worlds and never come back but um, but yeah a, a virtual world uh, particularly one that uses the the um, tools that I'm arguing for in my book uh, has has the ability to um, allow players to, or to show players how to uh, see things from different perspectives and, and empathize and identify, identify with uh, different people, different groups, different ideas that they may have never um, encountered before or they may have been previously opposed to, right? Um, this is a double-edged sword, of course, um, because you do have you know the, the gamer bro TM um, st still active in in the games community, and they have some pretty horrific views about certain things, unfortunately. Uh, but when these ideas are used for good, uh, you know you you create a stage, a, a a practice space, if you will where people can safely explore different ideas um, and understand different types of people, different um, groups of people, and, and hopefully have their concepts about things changed for the better um, so that they can become more, more progressive and more open and, and, and loving and empathetic towards those that may not look or act like them. That's a really good point you make. And I think... There was a book from about 10 years ago, Jane McGonigal's Super Better, where she very much touched on that argument where I think it's um, part of the value and the joy of games and interactive environments is that we can escape into them. But if they just become so compelling that we all essentially leave reality and dive into the into these fantasy environments without ever bringing anything back, that's challenging, right? Like, like as you say, the goal isn't to have everyone vanish into the metaverse. Um, so... Is, is part of what you're advocating for this idea that these environments we shape, these story worlds that we let people exist in, they help us come back to the real world with broader perspectives, more humanity, more like like there's an active reason for doing this, if, if you like. Yeah, yeah, that would definitely be, uh, you know, I may not, I may not have uh, verbalized it as well as you just did in, in my book, but, uh, but yeah, definitely that, uh, 
one of the the strong sort of oomphs that I have going in that book is is this idea that uh, video games or, or, or all, all forms of art really the, the ultimate goal of them is this idea of transcendence of, of sort of stepping outside of yourself and being able to see the world uh, the way it really is which is a world of infinite possibilities and diversity and color and and just beautiful things right and and when you're able to transcend yourself and see the world like that um, you're able to make changes to the world uh, and yeah. and changes to your personal life and changes to the lives of people around you uh, hopefully for the better uh, you know I, I, I I'm not about to say that everyone that experiences this form of transcendence is going to um, be a good guy about it, but uh, we still have to try, right? Um, doing nothing results in the world that we have now. Um, you know, this this world is is a result of apathy um, and and a result of uh, people that know better, um, either being too afraid to speak up or or just not knowing how to speak up. And so my, my hope is that uh, by exploring games from this different light um, or exploring story in general from this different light will give people the tools and, and the encouragement needed to stand up against all those rich old white men that are running the world into the ground um, and make changes before it is literally too late. Um, you know, that's a, a big part of, of, of what I'm trying to do with this book. Nick, are you saying that there is potentially more to game development than driving in-app purchases? Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say that word, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I am. Look, I have worked for and do still work for studios that that use utilize in-game um, purchases. Uh, I personally never buy them when I'm playing games, and I. I mean, there's two there's two kinds of in-game purchase, right? There is there are things that are purely cosmetic and uh, don't you know have any sort of effect on the actual playing of the game itself. That sort of stuff, I'm I'm okay with. You know, it's a it's an unsettling okay, but but I'm okay with that. I I, I can understand why a studio or a publisher might want to do that. That being said, there is a different form of, of um, in-game purchase that exists. Uh, things like pay to pay to play, pay to win, um, loot boxes, all, all NFTs. We can group that in there now, I guess. Um, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, there has been research done on that style uh, that has proven um, that it's predatory. Uh, these sorts of mechanics are typically used to prey on uh, the neurodiverse or people with gambling addictions or other sorts of addictions. Um, I, I, personally, I, I cannot see an ethical argument for doing that. Um, and I, I actually, I think I do touch on it briefly in my book, this idea that um, if you're utilizing this player in the pentacle model, um, you are I, I, so I talk about the the magic circle of, of narrative design, um, which we won't go into too deeply because it's it's a, a, a whole whole chapter in the book. But um, th this idea that you're consecrating the space for the player so that they can have this transcendent experience, right? And consecrating means to you know purify and keep safe and uh, create sort of protection. You think of the classic. Um, image of, of a, you know, a, a witch or a wizard or a warlock drawing the pentagram on the ground with chalk and inside a circle and then they stand in the middle of that circle while they're summoning a, a demon or whatever and that circle protects them or they're on the outside of the circle and, and the, the demon is housed within the circle right so this, the, the circle itself creates protection and so when I, I talk about that um, in the context of game design and just by the way the idea of the magic circle in game design is not new at all. It, it goes all the way back to the, I believe, the early 1900s. Um, but uh, yeah, the the idea is is that we have a responsibility as creators to uh, 
purify and make sacred and protect the space for players so that they can have this transcendent experience. Um, and that means that anything that gets in the way of immersion, um, anything that gets in the way of feeling like you are in union with that protagonist um, is, is a problem. Um, and I would say uh, these sorts of predatory monetization mechanics um, are a problem. Uh, they get in the way of that. Uh, and so I think I say in, in my book, like, focus instead on creating something that is emotionally resonant to players. Because emotional resonance is what creates an evergreen property, right? Um, something that people feel passionately connected to. They feel ownership over because they've been a part of it, um, whether in the development or the creation or the continual development, um, in the case of an online game, for example, they, they feel connected to it. They feel like these characters are theirs. Um, and that's what creates long-lasting fans. Once you get that right, then you can charge an extra few dollars for a DLC or, or a um, expansion of some sort to the game. But at, before that point, I, I just don't see a reason why it needs to be done. You're already charging, well, uh, here in New Zealand, it's like $120 for a game at the moment, um, or more, depending on, on what version of the game you buy. Um, that's crazy expensive, you know, um, and so you don't need that extra money. Just stop paying your CEOs that much and, and start paying your developers more. Um, that, that, that would be my advice. <laughs> <laughs> a focus on emotional resonance and co-creation. What, what an excellent note. That is actually the, the, the perfect note to wrap up our conversation on. This has been awesome. So Nick, the, the player in the pentacle, folkloric motifs for narrative design, will be out by the time this podcast is out. Where can people get it and where can people find you? Yeah, so uh, it is currently a, a, a Kindle um, uh, book. Uh, it, it will be out on the 20th of this month, which is what month are we in? Uh, March. <laughs> uh, 20th of March it, it comes out. Uh, so you can buy it on, on there. Oops, sorry. Uh, and uh, there will be a um, like a print-on-demand paperback as well. I'm, I'm just in the process of sorting that out at the moment. Um, my aim is to sort of get this out onto as many platforms as I can. So um, I guess stay tuned for, for EPUB, for um, audiobook, all of these sorts of things. Um, they will eventually come to fruition, hopefully. Uh, and uh, for finding me, I guess, uh, I do have a website, thepunkwriter.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, which I believe is just at the punk writer. They're probably the two best places that people can connect with me. There's also LinkedIn as well, um, but possibly not everyone is is using that uh, that listens to the podcast. But if you are, um, it's Nick Jones, um, and I'm sure you'll be able to find me if you use narrative design as a um, as a keyword in that, that search as well. That's awesome. Nick Jones, it has been a pleasure. I'm going to stop now and we'll chat a little bit afterwards, but thank you very much, sir. Awesome. No worries. Thanks for having me on. Tempest Bay wouldn't be possible without the amazing support of everyone involved, including you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. This helps us out a lot. For more, please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos, art, podcast, award-winning stories, and much more. That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay.